Chapter Eighteen of The Second Latchkey. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Carl, St. Louis, Missouri, October two thousand seven. The Second Latchkey by Charles Norris and Alice Muriel Williamson. Chapter Eighteen, The Star Sapphire. Picture after picture grew and faded in her mind. She saw policemen coming to the house. She saw Ruthven Smith demanding that she and Knight be searched, and arrested if the diamond were found. It might be difficult to prove that they had had nothing to do with the theft, especially as Knight had been on board the Monarchic. He must have traveled under his own name then, the name that he had not let her see when he wrote it in the register after the wedding. If Ruthven Smith knew about the monarchic and the change of name, he might make things very unpleasant for night. And what must he himself be thinking at this moment as he peered through his eyeglasses? Ansley had always told herself that Ruthven Smith looked like a schoolmaster. He looked more than ever like one tonight, a very severe schoolmaster, planning to punish a rebellious pupil. But he can't have accepted our invitation and have come to this house to make a scene and a scandal before everybody, she tried to reassure her troubled heart. Still, he wouldn't look like that if he didn't believe that I'm wearing the diamond, and if he did not mean to do something about it. It was a terrifying prospect for Ansley, and suddenly, with a shock of certainty, she told herself that Ruthven Smith would not give her time, if he could help it, to get rid of the ring and conceal it somewhere else. He'll think of an excuse after dinner to make me show what I have on my chain, or perhaps he has thought of the excuse already. It seemed to the girl that the room had become bitterly cold. She shivered slightly. I must take off the ring and put something else on the chain when we go away and leave the men, she decided. But no, even then it might be too late. Ruthven Smith never smoked nor drank. Very likely he would follow the ladies to the drawing-room without giving her the chance of cheating him. If she were to save Knight from trouble, she must do the thing she had to do at once. That thing was to unfasten the clasp of the chain, slip off the ring with the blue diamond, substitute another ring, fasten the chain again, and replace it inside her dress, all without letting Ruthven Smith across the table or her neighbor suspect what was being done. Her plate was whisked away at that moment, and leaning back in her chair she seized the opportunity of looking at her hands. Brain and heart were throbbing so fast that she could not remember, without counting, what rings she had put on. Knight had tried to console her for the loss she had suffered through the burglary a fortnight before, by making her a present of half a dozen new rings. Poor Knight! How anxious he always was to give her pleasure, no matter at what expense! He had such good taste in choosing jewelry, too, that one might almost fancy him as great an expert as Ruthven Smith. But he had laughed when she said this to him, protesting that he was a rank amateur. The new rings were all beautiful, each unique in its way. The big white diamond of her engagement ring was the least original of her possessions. Tonight, in addition to that and her wedding ring, she wore on her left hand a grayish star sapphire of oval shape, curiously set with four small diamonds, white ones at top and bottom, pale pink and yellow at the sides. 
This ring was rather large for her, and, as she wore it above her engagement ring, the stone slipped easily round toward the palm. The dark blue scarab on her right hand Ruthven might have observed, but she was hopeful that the star sapphire had escaped his notice. She took it off and laid it in her lap, ready. Her dress of white chameaux, embroidered with violets, was fastened in front under a folded and crossed fichu of shadow lace, and a bunch of real violets held on by an old-fashioned brooch. Bending forward, she played at eating Poncha la Romaine, while in her left hand she contrived to undo three or four hooks from their delicately worked eyelets. Then, slipping two fingers into the aperture, she tore open her lace underbodice. This accomplished, she felt the ring of the blue diamond, but she dared not break the chain, as she could easily have done. If Ruthven Smith were planning some trick by which to obtain a glimpse of ring and chain, the latter must be intact. Pinching the chain between thumb and finger patiently, persistently, and very cautiously, she pulled it along until she touched the tiny clasp. As she did this, she glanced down at the lace of her fichu now and then to make sure she did not draw the thin line of gold so tightly across her neck that it became visible and moving. At last she had the clasp in her hand. Pressed upon sharply, it opened, and the ring with the blue diamond fell into her palm. She pushed it inside her frock, down as far as her fingers would reach, and slid the star sapphire ring on to the chain before fastening the clasp again. She was shivering still, as if with cold, and her hands trembled so that she could hardly put the hooks of her dress into their eyelets, but somehow she did at last, and was sure that no one had seen. More than one course had come and gone before her stealthy task was finished, and three or four minutes after the last hook had decided to bite, Constance looked at the Duchess of Peebles. Everyone rose, and, as Ansley had feared, Ruthven Smith followed the ladies out of the great dining hall. Constance led them to the Chinese drawing-room for coffee, and as the women grouped themselves to chat, or gaze at Buddhas and treasures of ancient dynasties, she suddenly recalled Madalena's last vision in the crystal. It seemed that it would interest, rather than frighten her friends, to hear it. Besides, if it did frighten them a little, she didn't mind much. She bore the Duchess of Peebles and several others a grudge, because they had come to Valley House not on her account, or Dick's, but because it was an open secret who were the real host and hostess on this occasion. Last year, if she had invited these people, they would have been dreadfully sorry they were already promised for Easter. It was Nelson Smith's money and popularity which had lured them. They knew they would have wonderful things to eat, and probably the women were counting on presents of Easter eggs in the morning, with exciting surprises inside. "'Are you all very brave?' she asked aloud and gaily. "'Because I've just remembered that the Countess de Santiago saw a picture of us in her crystal, grouped together as we are now in this very room, and something happening.' "'Something nice or horrid?' asked the Duchess, a tall, pretty woman, who looked as if Rossetti had created her with finishing touches by Burne jones "'Ah, she couldn't see. The vision faded,' Constance replied. "'But perhaps we shall see, if this is to be the night.' As she spoke, the men came into the room. Ruthven Smith's example was contagious. They had been deserted by the ladies hardly ten minutes ago. 
Ansley felt sure that Knight had contrived to hurry the others. He, too, then, had guessed why Ruthven Smith had gone out of the dining hall with the women. Perhaps he also had a plan. He came straight to his wife, who was standing with Lady Cartwright, not far off with Ruthven Smith, still with his eyeglasses on. He was hovering with a nervous air in front of a cabinet full of beautiful things, at which he scarcely glanced. Seeing Knight approach Ansley, he lifted his head, took a hesitating step in her direction, and stopped. He looked timid and miserable, yet obstinate. "'Anita, I've been telling the Duke about that star sapphire I picked up for you the other day,' Knight began. "'He says he never saw one with anything resembling a star in it. Will you fetch it for him to look at?' I noticed as you got up from the table that you hadn't put it on tonight. For an instant the girl could not answer. If only he had hit upon something else. If only it had occurred to her to hide her left hand after taking off the ring. But she could not have foreseen this. For the first time she was inclined to believe in the Countess de Santiago's supernatural power. Could it be that this scene had pictured itself in the crystal? Could it be that now, in a moment, something dreadful would happen? She realized that Knight was trusting to the quickness of her wits, that not only had he overheard Ruthven Smith's talk about the Malindor diamond, but he credited her with having caught the drift of the words and counted on her loyalty to help him. As he spoke, he looked at her with the wistful, seeking look she had seen in his eyes when they were first married. "'He's afraid I'm angry with him for buying the diamond in spite of knowing what it was,' she thought. "'But he trusts me to stand by him now.' Her mind grew clear. After a pause no longer than the drawing of a breath, she was ready to rise to the situation Knight had created. In fact, she saw safety for him and herself, as well as a realistic surprise for Ruthven Smith. But the latter, rendered brave to act through fear of loss, was too quick for her. "'I beg your pardon. Before you go, may I have the pleasure of a nearer look at that beautiful enamel brooch of yours?' It was Ansley's impulse to step back, as without waiting for permission the narrow head, sleekly brushed and slightly bald at the top, bent over her laces. But she remembered herself in time and stood still. She dared not glance at night to send him a message of encouragement, but she knew that for once even his resourcefulness had failed, and that he must be stealing himself for the brutal discovery of his secret. Yet, even then, she did not guess what Ruthven Smith's plan was until the thing had happened. He peered at the brooch, which represented a bunch of grapes in small caboshan amethysts, and leaves of green enamel. Adjusting his eyeglasses, they slipped from his nose and fell on the lace of her fichu. "'Oh, how awkward of me! A thousand pardons!' he cried. Making a nervous grab for the glasses which hung from a chain, he snatched up her chain as well, and with a quick jerk of seeming inadvertence wrenched from its warm hiding-place a ring with a flash of brilliance and a glint of blue. Ansley's heart had given one great throb and then missed a beat, for there had been an awful instant as the plan developed when her fear that the ring with the blue diamond might— after all her pains had become entangled with the chain. If it had, the violence of the jerk might have brought it to light. But she had accomplished her task well. She could afford to smile, though her lips trembled, as she saw the bird-of-prey look fade from Ruthven Smith's face and turn into bewildered humiliation. 
Wright was on his side, yet he had the air of a culprit, and some wild strain in Ansley's nature, which had been asleep till that instant, sang a song of triumph in the victory of her plan over his. How delighted Knight would be, and how amazed and grateful, grateful as he had been when she stood by him with the watchers. As Ruthven Smith stammered apologies, her eyes flashed to Knight's, but there was none of the defiant laughter she had expected, and felt bound to reproach him for later. He was pale, and though his immense power of self-control kept him in check, Ansley shrank almost with horror from the fury of rage against Ruthven Smith, which she read in her husband's gaze, and the beating of the veins in his temples. Terrified lest his anger should break out in words, she hurried on to say what she would have said before the sudden move by the jewel expert. "'Here is the sapphire ring you asked about, Knight,' she said. "'I was just going to take off this chain and give it to you to show the Duke when—' "'When Mr. Ruthven Smith took an unwarrantable liberty,' Knight finished the sentence icily. I, I meant nothing, really. I can't tell you how I regret,' the wretched man stuttered, but Knight was without mercy. "'Pray don't try any further,' he cut in. "'My wife is not a figurine in a shop window to have her ornaments stared at and pawed over. "'You are an old friend of hers, Mr. Ruthven Smith, and you are my guest, or rather my friend Ansley Seaton's guest. "'Therefore I will say no more. "'But in some countries where I have lived such an incident would have ended differently.' "'Oh, please, Knight!' exclaimed Ansley, thankful that at least he had spoken his harsh words, in so low a voice that no one outside their own group of three could hear. But she was shocked out of her brief exultation by his white rage, and the depths revealed by the lightning flash of anger. Also she was sorry for Ruthven Smith, even while she resented the plot which it was evident he had come to carry out.' With unsteady hands she lifted the delicate chain over her hair and gave it to her husband. "'The ring is rather large for my finger. Here it is for you to show to the Duke,' she reminded him. "'Thank you, Anita,' he said, and she knew that he thanked her for more than what she gave him. "'I am a thousand times sorry,' Ruthven Smith persisted, "'more sorry than I can ever explain or you will ever know.' Indeed it was nothing, the girl comforted him in her soft young voice, but she read in his words a hidden meaning, as she had read one in tonight's. She did know that which he believed she would never know, the meaning of his act, and the effort it had cost to screw his courage to the sticking place. Also, as the star sapphire with its sparkle of diamonds had flashed into sight, she seemed to read his mind. She guessed he must be telling himself that his informant, the countess, or some other, had mistaken one blue stone for another. "'Let's go and join Constance and the Duchess,' she went on quietly. "'They're looking at some lovely things you will like to see, and you must forget that Knight was cross. He has lived in wild places, and he has a hot temper.' "'I deserved what I got, I'm afraid,' murmured Ruthven Smith. "'After all, nothing exciting seems likely to happen tonight in this room, in spite of the Countess's prophecy,' said Constance. "'Perhaps it may be tomorrow or Monday.' "'I hope nothing more exciting will happen then than tonight,' Ansley exclaimed, with a kindly glance at her companion. She pitied him, but she pitied herself more, for by and by she and Knight would have to talk this out together.' For the first time she dreaded the moment of being alone with her husband— there was a stain of clay on the feet of her idol, and though she had helped him hide it from others' eyes, nothing could be right between them again until she had told him what she thought. 
until he had promised to make restitution somehow of the thing he should never have possessed. End of chapter 18